Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever-changing healthcare industry. Hey, welcome, Dr. Malia Cromer, to the HFAM Quality Cares Talk podcast. Thanks for making the time today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I got to tell you, I'm a fan of all that you're doing at Goucher College and the Sarah T. Hughes Field Politics Center there. Tell me a little bit about what it is that you do at Goucher College. Sure. First, thank you so much. I never turned down an opportunity to talk about Maryland politics. It's really exciting stuff. And it's really great to talk to somebody who is as interested in it as I am. Thanks. So uh, I guess long story short, the Hughes Center is funded by an endowment from the late judge Sarah Tillman Hughes. Your audience might know her for being the judge who swore in LBJ after Kennedy was shot. There's that very iconic photo of her on Air Force One. And so when she, she was a Goucher alum, and when she passed away, she donated money to the college and gave us this really sort of broad, a broad open memory of understanding to do whatever we, basically we wanted to with it, as long as we were engaging students in politics and public affairs. And so for years, that took the form as the speaker series, and we had you know, great success with it. But in 2012, the college was looking to go in a different direction and to use the money to do a statewide poll of Marylanders. And I was at Elon University at the time and I saw the job ad and I was very excited for the opportunity to build something from the ground up. And so I applied for the job. My husband was thrilled. He is a city kid and was very excited to leave North Carolina for Baltimore. And so we, I, I built it from the ground up and we now do a biannual survey of Marylanders on different issues facing the state. Well, you certainly have gotten an incredible amount of traction, you and your students, on the work of the center and specifically the poll. I mean, you're a frequent commentator. You've been quoted about Maryland politics in the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, the Atlantic, NPR, the Boston Globe, Glamour Magazine, and U.S. News and World Reports, in addition to a number of peer-reviewed journals. What's up with all of that? (laughs) <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. Um, first, I will say that media outlets do love to talk to pollsters. Um, there's something just fundamentally interesting with knowing what's going on in the public's mind. And I think it's, it's listen, it's a foundational thing for democracy. We want government to reflect the will of the people. And polls give us an opportunity to kind of tap in and check in with the will of the people. So that's one thing. But also, I really came to Maryland at a very advantageous time for somebody who's interested in state politics. You know, we have, um, we had a Senate race or Senate primary against you know, Donna Edwards versus Chris Van Hollen, which got some national attention because it really kind of reflected this internal struggle the Democratic Party is having with more sort of a progressive left wing versus a, you know somebody you know with more uh, stronger establishment roots. We had um, an outgoing governor who was on track to run for president in Martin O'Malley, and now we have a Republican governor that even in the time of Trump here, we, we see somebody who has, has sustained favorability ratings in the, you know, and approval ratings in the 70%, which is really, I think, it's, to put it in kind of context, it's, it's amazing to have that, that high of approval ratings for that long of a time. It's unheard of, right? I mean, I think in Maryland history, in Maryland political history, the only person that's come close is Barbara Mikulski. 
Right. So to hold, yes, to have like that sort of sustained approval ratings. And, and I think that even a lot of times that governors even come out under, I think, a lot higher scrutiny oftentimes than our senators or our individual members of the House of Representatives, because they're responsible a lot of times where people look to them for the day-to-day operations of the state. And so the second something goes wrong, sort of wrong in the state, the governor gets the um, kind of immediate blame. Absolutely. I mean, you know, mayors and county executives for things like snow removal and governors for things like hurricanes and toll fees. And, and economic conditions. And so, right. so again, so back to the whole like getting, so Maryland is, I think, at this really interesting point in time where, you know, we take a bat, we, we certainly are backstage during a presidential election, right? You know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're a blue state. You know, Hillary Clinton best Donald Trump by 30 percentage points. That's a, a, a story we've you know, heard before. People are focused on the swing states versus us, you know, during a presidential year. But during these off election years, particularly this one, where you have this happenstance of a very popular Republican governor, a moderate in a blue state going up against a, you know, a very formidable challenger in Ben Jealous, who represents what a lot of people view as the sort of future of the Democratic Party. That you know he he's a civil rights leader. Uh, he supports Medicare for all. He supports that fifteen a fifteen dollar minimum wage. He is certainly, I think, further outside or further outside the the mainstream Democratic ideology, at least for anything that we've elected in this state. So it's interesting. So on presidential politics, we clearly are a blue state, right? So Clinton came, got one point six, almost one point seven million votes against Trump. Pence, President Trump and Vice President Pence now, who got, you know, 943,000 votes, bettered, as you precisely said, by almost exactly 30% Hillary Kane over Trump Pence. But then interestingly enough, in the 2014 race for governor, then candidate Hogan won 37 state legislative districts to Lieutenant Governor Brown's 30 districts. And in the 2016 race, Secretary Clinton won 39 districts to now President Trump's 28 districts. So we were solidly, solidly blue in candidate Clinton versus candidate Trump, but pretty significantly purple, I guess, in Hogan-Brown. It, listen, it's difficult to stay with the distinction of the purple state, blue state sort of argument that, that I think the folks are more inclined to have now because we've had a Republican governor now with such sustained strong approval ratings. You know, I, I would make the argument, though, at the same time that Governor Hogan was able to win re-election in 2014, the biggest vote getter in that election cycle was Democratic Comptroller Peter Francho, that I think followed next by Brian Frosch. And so, and at the same time, we reelected a Maryland General Assembly that had a veto-proof majority in the, in the House of Delegates and the State Senate. And so it's, I think it's very, you'd be very careful to contextualize this as a purple state when we're really just sort of talking about Republican Governor Larry Hogan at this point. Right. So we're talking about a unique situation there, you think? So he's right. And so that's the uniqueness of the governor. And so that brings up a lot of other fundamental questions, particularly in this election cycle. And I think perhaps before Trump, the kind of upset, the surprise victory of Donald Trump, I think that, you know, you'll see sort of reports back from Republicans. They were really hoping that Larry Hogan would would remain popular and then have these coattails that perhaps would flip enough Senate seats or help flip enough Senate seats to get the Republicans outside of the speedo-proof majority that the Democrats have. I don't know if that will happen now that we have, you know, that there is kind of this sort of 
the, the national implications of the race and how that might affect turnout in some areas. But certainly, I think that Hogan has been able to distance himself far enough away from national politics that he himself has been able to be insulated. But I don't know if he will be able to pull up enough Republicans to offset that veto-proof majority in the, in the Maryland Senate. Right. So, you know, so two things that come up, right? So I was fortunate a very long time ago to work for a governor in another state, to work for Governor Wahe'e in Hawaii. And Governor Wahe'e ran for governor as the sitting lieutenant governor in a very sort of Obama-esque career. He had been a member of the Constitutional Convention. He had served one term in the House, which in Hawaii is only two years in the like local House of Representatives, had been tapped to be lieutenant governor but was very much considered not the leading candidate for governor. And he won, and he won handily his reelection. And recently I had a chance to sit down with Governor Wahe'e again. And he said, look, Joe, really it comes down to this. Voters have to have a reason to vote for someone and against someone else. And then you have to have the capacity to get them to vote. How does that resonate with you, given all that we've discussed versus red, blue, and the uniqueness of Larry Hogan on the one side and the and actually the uniqueness of Ben Jealous on the other. No, certainly you have two, I think, really fundamentally interesting candidates. And my favorite sort of the endorsement from the Baltimore Sun in the Democratic primary for Ben Jealous, I think really it laid out a really interesting case for him. And I would suggest people should go back and read it. But they talk a lot about the distinctiveness, the, the contrast between Hogan and Jealous. And I think that that potentially does set up a really interesting race. These are two fundamentally different candidates in terms of their, I think, their approach to governance and the, the policy objectives they want, I think, that they're looking for. You know, I think Ben Jealous is certainly somebody who has a very broad vision for the future and would like to see the sort of Bernie Sanders style democratic socialism in you kind of take root here in Maryland. And, and what, what I know that people kind of cringe when they hear the some people at least cringe when they hear the word socialism. But what I think what he's talking about, again, is the government stepping in to ensure a living wage, the government stepping in to assure health care for all. And then, of course, there's an associated tax with that. You know, on the other hand, you know, the governor is focusing more um, on economic development and trying to find ways to reduce the tax burden or the fee, and in some ways, the fee burden here in Maryland. And that's what he ran on in 2014. And that really does give Maryland voters, uh, really, I think, a clear distinction between the two of what path forward they'd like to take. So in the end, will it be that voters for Jealous will be voting for something and against something, and voters for Governor Hogan will be voting for Governor Hogan and against something? I, I, think, I think that that's fair to say, but what becomes, I think, interesting is whether that's something that the Democrats are voting against is Donald Trump and not Larry Hogan. And I think that is the kind of the moment where, although you know the governor seems to be doing really well in terms of his public approval ratings, I'm sure members of his team, you know, hold their breath a little bit every time the president goes on TV to say something, or you know, has sort of this, or you know, continues to have public approval ratings in the single digits, you know, or the or the teens, excuse me, among Democrats, right? So there's part of them who do worry that you know the Democrats will vote for jealous because they do like perhaps some of his ideas about raising the minimum wage, something that is very popular here in the state. We pulled on it several times. And then perhaps voting, you know, against Larry Hogan because they are, you know, because they don't like the R next to his name. Now, that sort of Trump effect, though, Hogan has been lucky enough 
or at least maybe politically savvy enough or has distanced himself enough that he has not been drugged down by the uh, President Trump as much as you would have expected or at all. So I, I see this tension here on the one hand in what Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. And on the other end of sort of the rubber band with the tension, this blue wave we're seeing that is increasingly gaining momentum as a result of the Trump presidency. So the question is whether that actually, so right, you, you make that distinction about all politics being local. And, and so I do think there is an important distinction to be made between governors and everybody else. So our, when I mean everybody else, I mean those members of the, the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, those candidates. So they, you know, when you're running for the Senate or you're running for the House at the federal level, you are involved in these everyday issues with President Trump. On the other hand, when you are the governor of the state, a lot of folks view you as almost like the CEO of the state, that you're running the sort of the day-to-day operations of the management of the state. And so you are not as involved in some of these sort of high-profile social issues that you are held accountable for when you are a member of the Senate or the House of Representatives. And, and that being said, for O'Malley, throughout his time in office in those eight years, he really achieved, in the eyes of progressives, a lot of these real, some serious victories, you know, so much so that Governor Hogan doesn't really have to talk that, you know, doesn't have to talk about the death penalty. He doesn't have to talk about, at that time, well, gay marriage, but, you know, obviously now it's been passed through the Supreme Court. And even some of the immigration issues that, you know, they passed the DREAM Act allowing undocumented residents who've been here to get in-state tuition. Right. So they've already they took care of it like that. O'Malley's administration did have all those progressive victories on the, on social issues. And so Hogan could focus a lot on the economic issues in which he certainly is more comfortable talking about. Right. So in a way, the success of the of the O'Malley administration took away some of the traditional wedge issues that would be problematic for a traditional Republican governor or a statewide Republican candidate. Sure. And you're, you're seeing issues now. I mean, I, I will point, bring up gun control as, as a big issue, you know, but Maryland in 2012, you know, passed some of the strictest gun control measures in the country. And so in the recent, the recent legislative session, you know, Hogan signed on to the ban on bump stocks and the, I think the red flag law. And so he has, he's shown a willingness to sign on to those gun control measures, but the kind of the core gun control measures were taken care of in 2012. And so that's the, that coming in as governor was the status quo for the state. And so he doesn't get the same amount of blowback that other Republicans, perhaps at the federal level, and even maybe for other, other states, have received from progressives who are really concerned about gun control issues. And so the Democrats certainly have been pushing back a little bit on, on the governor. They want him to release a NRA questionnaire that he completed when he ran in 2014, and he gave him that A minus rating. But then, on the other hand, the governor recently, as I think it was maybe a week ago, stated to a group of a group of students at Great Mills High School where the shooting was in Maryland that he was not going to accept any endorsement from the National Rifle Association. So even that, I mean, because Maryland has really dealt with some gun, not all, but some gun control issues, it does it, it minimizes the need for him to have to do it. So, yeah. So I think, I think you make a really good point that these would be core issues of difference in other jurisdictions. And because of the success of namely the O'Malley administration and others who work with them in the general assembly. Yes. As well as the general assembly. Measures, 
that those issues were taken off the plate. So in 2014, in the Hogan-Brown election versus 2010, which had been Governor O'Malley's re-election running a second time against former Governor Ehrlich, I think there were about 125,000 fewer Democrats that voted in the general in 2014 than did in 2010. So was Governor Hogan victorious because of A, fewer Democrats voted in the Democratic side, or B, some Democrats voted for Governor Hogan? So we don't know, we'll never know the full story because there was never any formal exit polling done on that race. And one of the reasons there wasn't any formal exit polling done by sort of the usual suspects would be, you know, the CNNs of the world is because nobody really expected, I think, Larry Hogan to win. <laughs> and so that, you know, I think that people took for granted that it was like this two to one Democratic to Republican ratio. And they, I think a lot of folks just assumed, and I was one of them. I think a lot of people, I mean, I, you know, I was wrong, and so were a lot of other people. You know, assumed that Anthony Brown was going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, I was um, wrong. I thought he was going to win. I can't. There is a handful of smart people I, I, that that saw through it, and they, you know, said no, it's not. But so right. So I, I think about that race a lot, and and progressives will now say, listen, as long as Democrats turn out, Democrats win, and that might have been the case in 2014. But I also caution people to start to quit kind of trying to experience this electoral deja vu. Governor Hogan is a fundamentally different candidate than he was. He's not a novice anymore. He is, you know, he's somebody with a full term under his belt with a record now that he can talk about and sustain favorability ratings with Marylanders. And so, sure, there there will likely be higher levels of turnout in this election cycle. But the question is, you know, whether those individuals are turning out, why they're turning out, or or they're turning out to vote him out of office, and I, and I think that's an important, I think an important question to ask. And another thing that makes it just so different is Larry Hogan has something like in the millions and millions of dollars in his in his campaign war chest compared to Ben Jealous, right? And so it's he's a it's a different candidate, it's a different race than it was back in 2014, right? But you know, a critic would say that. In 2014, Hogan didn't have a lot of money in his war chest, a la Jealous now. And Jealous's Sanders connection allows him to maybe plug into the Sanders fundraising. Which is, by the way, I mean, so if you look at that, and I think that's a, it's a fantastic point, because if you look at the race on the Democratic side, the primary, it's clear that Ben Jealous won that race in the waning weeks. So, you know, we looked at public opinion polls in the weeks leading up to the primary election, and there was something like 25 to 30% of the voters undecided. And what, what Jealous was able to do, I mean, a very, you know, really kind of a savvy move, he was able to leverage these sort of key outside endorsements that came in stumped in Democratic stronghold areas in Montgomery County. And, and not only that, I think he had, by this point in time, you know, he had solidified the support of the unions, you know, from the beginning part of his campaign. And these are individuals who know how to turn out the vote. And in those last weeks, I mean, he had, a, he had a strong, organized ground game. He had high profile endorsements and then he had some outside money. So you had the you know, spending from these outside organizations from this, our revolution, as well as other groups, you know, came in to support the jealous candidacy and uh, allowed him to air some campaign ads in the Baltimore region to really sort of run up the score. And that, you know, taken together, you know, shows that Ben Jealous is certainly an individual who knows how to run a campaign as well. 
So I, I, that's another, I think, really kind of core interesting thing about it. You have a, you know, a strong governor going, a strong incumbent, and Governor Hogan, and you have you know, a challenger that really represents what a lot of people want to see is the future of the Democratic Party, and there will certainly be some outside money spent from those groups. So Dr. Cromer, I know you very much, your operation there at the Hughes Field Politics Center is very much focused on students. We're going to be getting into the fall semester here. At what point do you all start polling and how will some of these polling instruments look different given Maryland's election and the national politics going into November of this year? So I will say one unique thing about my organization is a lot of it is student-driven. And so I'm teaching a course in the fall called Survey Research Methods, and the students will have a say in what goes on the instrument. That's what we go with a survey questionnaire. And so they always do. Every single semester, every single gotcha poll, the students have it. They get to decide. They get to help me decide what goes on the instrument. And so what we'll, we're planning on doing a poll sometime in September. And so students in that class will research questions. They will research the race. And what we try to do at Goucher is try to ask questions or to do something a little bit different than just your basic horse race. Now, we'll definitely do the horse race. We always do the horse race. But we'll also try, I think we'll, we always try to come up with questions that are a little bit more unique that really sort of tap into, I don't know, like a unique story of where Marylanders sort of sit on these issues. And so I, I, it's to be determined. But I, I don't know yet. So That's great that it's student-driven. So you think you'll field it in September? We'll probably field, we'll, we'll field one in September. That's what we always do. We always have a, a September gotcha poll or so, uh, late September, sort of early October-ish. We'll probably move some things around depending on the final the debate schedule. We'll try to make it work so we, you know, we fit in an appropriate time. So if you field it then when, if you field it, field it? Field it, uh, yeah. <laughs> September or October. When would you all release the numbers theoretically? So that's the beauty of having an in-house operation. So we control everything. And so the students will help me write the instrument. But we have an on-campus call center. The students also do all the calling. And then I do all the data analytics and all the data analysis. And then our, the good folks over our communications department help us write the press release. And so I really, so polls are snapshots in time. And so I take that very seriously and we are, usually will be out of the field on, you know, if we're out of the field on a Thursday, that means all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, I'm writing and doing cross tabs and meeting. I, I, usually, I have a team of students who work for me as student supervisors, and they're, they're there checking numbers and helping me write quotes and getting this thing ready to go. And then we'll be, have it ready to go on Monday or Tuesday. So that's the awesome. time is about four, three, to three to four days. I mean, that's so impressive. That, yeah. I mean, it's weird. Up. <laughs> that's awesome. So will you do more than one instrument in the fall or just the one? We, I'm not sure. And it, that all depends on sort of the finalized debate schedule where, you know, we try not to call over Jewish holidays. Yep. We try not to, and we try, I have to work around fall break. And, you know, so there's a couple, it depends, but there is a, there is a hypothetical way for us to get two polls in before the general election. And we'll just see if the mat, if I can make that madness happen. Let me ask you a random question. Do debates nowadays matter? Like in the way that they mattered, Kennedy, Nixon, do they matter? I, well, I think if something big happens, they do. And it's not the debate itself that matters. I think it's not the, you know, whether people, perhaps whether they turn in and watch it. I think it matters in terms of like the spin after. Right. So if there's a clear victory by somebody or if there's a moment that can be played over and over again on YouTube or turn into an attack ad or a campaign ad, 
No, that's when really debates matter. I will say this, that uh, during the debates for the Democratic primary, I was a little bit disappointed that they weren't shown live. I think that, you know, we should be promoting a culture, a civic culture in which, you know, kind of even gathering around the TV to watch a debate is an important sort of thing we do as active voters and citizens. And so I'm hoping that this cycle or this, the general election, that we see some debates that are either, you know, live streamed or, you know, they're, they're shown live on the television stations in which that they are sponsoring. Right. No, I, I would tend to agree. I think there's something to doing it in real time. We do... We do reality shows now in real time. We do, you know, all of our social media is in real time. We've done for a very long time now sports in real time. We did landing on the moon in real time. We, you know, certainly we're more capable now of being able to have our elected leaders and our aspiring elected leaders to to share their ideas with us in real time. So a couple of questions. One, I want to just sort of, Really, we talked a little bit about it, but I want to make sure I, I nailed down a little bit better because I'm still trying to get my arms around it. So red, blue, purple states, are those static or dynamic or that matters on whether you're talking about a federal race or a state race? What's the story? Yeah, listen, I think that there are certainly times where blue states can vote for Republican governors, obviously as evidenced by, by Maryland, but you do see some... As the population migrates to different areas, you can certainly see some shifting in how states actually vote in these presidential elections. You know, certainly North Carolina for a while was certainly, you know, going into that purple state situation. It seems to be pulling back a little bit now. We'll see what that looks like in the next election cycle. But right, so it's, it's hard. I think that there are some possibilities to change. But just like public opinion, sort of like sort of core values and ideology, and party affiliation. I mean, that stuff is sticky and it takes a long time for sort of mass level change. Got it. So so I don't think Maryland will be turning red anytime soon, even if they like them, even if if voters tend to like their moderate Republican governor. Got it. So past, present, and future, what is the role of the independent voter in Maryland and in the country? So independent voters are growing across the country, um, I think, particularly because of a dissatisfaction with the two-party system. But, you know, for Maryland, the independent voter matters, I think, a big deal, particularly in these sort of this gubernatorial election, because Larry Hogan is doing so well, I think, among independents. So our public opinion polls have shown over the last few years that Republicans, his base is unshakable. Uh, So even as the governor has sort of pushed back against the Trump administration, Republicans in the state still really like the governor. And I say really like, I mean, really, really like. And independents have given him high marks as well, um, consistently in the upper 60s. And so, yeah, so it, it does matter greatly how many independents turn out to vote. I know our focus with the blue wave has been about Democratic voters, but I think it's also important to note, you know, to pay attention to that. I think it's around 18, between 15 and 18 percent of Maryland unaffiliated, it's 18% in March 2018 of unaffiliated voters. Got it. Independent voters. So especially in the gubernatorial election, independent voters matter. I think that, yeah, I think independent voters certainly matter. And, and, it's, and particularly what becomes, I think, really interesting in Maryland, though, is this, and this is a complaint you get from independents a lot, is that we're a closed primary state. And this is the only election they really get to vote in. So they didn't get to have, so Democrats got to turn out and decide on their nominee, and they have to participate in that primary. 
I mean, Republicans did, would have too if there, you know, had, Hogan had a challenger. But independents really just did not. They could vote for some, I think, school board, maybe some local, maybe some really hyper-localized elections. But I don't, there wasn't, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity for them to turn out to vote just yet. Well, I tell you, I think it's going to be a roller coaster between now and November, don't you think? I, I do. I think that there is always, I, I always say there's two camps that are, I think are fundamentally wrong about this election. The first camp is the people who think the blue wave will drown every Republican, including Larry Hogan. I think those people are fundamentally wrong. And I also think the people who think, who, who view that uh, Larry Hogan's approval rating will completely insulate him are wrong as well. I think this is going to be a really tight race between him and Ben Jealous. I don't see a blowout really happening on either side. Things are sort of, will sort of counterbalance each other, and it will be a, a really a tight race to the finish. Yeah, I tend to agree. So listen, I hope that we can visit again as we get closer or maybe right after the election. Again, you shared such tremendous insight today with the listeners of HFAM Quality Care Talks. Politics matters in issues of public policy because it's how we approach these issues and put a face to the problems and the challenges that we need to navigate in our communities. So thank you very much. Continue your great work at the Sarah T. Hughes Field Center for Politics at Gosser College. And I just can't thank you enough for being our guest today and for that all that you do. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Be well. Thank you for joining us on Quality Care Talks. We would love your feedback on today's episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes. Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest nationally affiliated association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers. For more information, visit www.hfam.org.